our name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we know in the next three days we're going to celebrate the fast of Jonah and uh, hopefully it is a celebration. We don't think of fasting as something gloomy, but it's approaching. It's right around the corner. And it's, it's interesting because Jesus actually refers to a lot of different prophecies. He refers to a lot of different prophets. But there's only one prophet. Out of all of the prophets, there's only one prophet that he identifies to himself, that he relates to personally. And that's Jonah. Jonah is the only prophet that Christ relates to as himself. Okay, so if you remember uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, This is an evil generation, it seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Okay, so he tells them, just as Jonah was a sign, to the Ninevites, the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. So he relates himself to Jonah, right? And he makes it very clear. We know that Jonah is a type of Christ. And anytime you hear that word, like a typology or a type of Christ, it literally means someone who foreshadows the person of Christ. Someone who resembles Christ in one way or another, Okay? So I want to look at a few points that really bring this to life, how Jonah is really a type of Christ and what the significance of this relationship might be. All right, so for, for starters, let's just look at the name Jonah itself, right? Jonah in Hebrew is Yonah. Okay? It literally means dove, literally means dove. And we all know that dove, the dove is like a symbol of peace, right? Remember whenever uh, the flood happened and uh, you know that Noah sent a dove to, uh, to just f- fly around to see if there's any place for, for it to settle and, and to, to determine whether the flood has uh, completely subsided and the ground has dried and it brought back to him an olive branch, and that's a symbol of peace. Okay, so his name is basically peace. And we know that Christ himself is the king of peace, right? Christ is the king of peace. He is the source of peace. Okay, so in this way, Christ fulfills what Jonah was pointing to, even by his own name. Okay, there's a fulfillment in the name of Jonah himself. Jonah comes from a town called Gath Hafar. Okay, literally this word in Hebrew, it means wine press of digging. Alright, and you'll see this language a little bit more in other major prophets, especially Isaiah, who talks about the wine press. And the wine press is always a figure of the cross. Okay, wine press is literally like where they make wine. Okay, so just imagine this like big pit. And there's like a bunch of grapes and people are like stomping around in this big pit until they crush all of these grapes and you have this grape juice that just, you know, oozes off to the side and then it ferments, right? But in that area, somebody is crushing these grapes, right? So 
it points to the cross where Christ himself was, was crushed, put to death, okay? where, where Christ died. Jonah is said to be the son of Amittai. Okay? That word literally means, Amittai, that word literally means truth. It's closer to the, the Arabic because in Arabic it's aman, or Amittai comes from aman. And a man is like truth or, or faithfulness, right? And we know Christ, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He himself is truth, right? So just as Jonah is the son of truth, Christ himself appears and reveals that truth because he himself is the truth. We know that the whole three days thing is pretty much as clear as it gets, right? Jonah's in the belly of the whale for three days and Christ is in the tomb for three days, right? But what's significant here, what we really want to stress, is that these three days point to the death and the resurrection which produced life for Nineveh. Just as the death and the resurrection of Christ produced life for humanity. Okay? So, if Jonah had never gotten swallowed up by this big fish or whale, and figuratively speaking, had been dead for three days, or maybe he literally was and God raised him, who knows? But we do know that he was in there and he had a beautiful prayer, and uh, he was probably gross with whale guts and stuff, but... That's what happened. And after he was vomited out, something mystical happened to him. It was as if he rose from the dead, and from whatever happened to him, Nineveh received life. So, had Jonah never descended into the waters, and had he never gotten swallowed up by this whale, this three-day death burial would have never happened, which would have prevented Nineveh from receiving the fruit of what happened to Jonah, just as Christ was dead, buried for three days, and from His resurrection, all of humanity receives life. Okay, now, we can go on and on about some other points to relate Jonah to Christ, but I'll stop there and actually change direction a little bit, and... uh, no pun intended, but we'll look at the direction that Jonah was actually heading. Okay? We know that he was called to go to Nineveh. Right? But he said, no thanks, I'm going to go to Tarshish, which is like literally the opposite direction. Okay? So even though Jonah is a type of Christ, and even though his whole life points to the life of Christ, he wasn't perfect. And we can learn something from this specific event in his life. Okay? So, as Jonah is trying to flee from God, it's during this specific time, during this uh, absurd attempt to flee, that he actually finds God, which is quite ironic, right? Because whenever you're running away from something, you would expect that you would continue to move further and further away and 
you wouldn't expect to find whatever you're running away from. But if you run in the opposite direction and you find whatever it is that you're running from, then it goes to tell you that whatever you're running away from was actually chasing you. Okay? So, if you remember David meditating on this concept of, of God always chasing us, okay? he says in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, if I lie down in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So what's ironic is that Jonah is running away from God, running and running and running and running. But God's a little faster, (laughs) right? And God is the one chasing him. And in his effort to run away from God is actually when he finds God. So, I'm not saying we should all run from God, but the news for you today is God's a lot faster. The news for you today is God will always catch up, no matter where you've run off to. Jonah could have been, like David says here, he could have been in hell. He could have made his bed in hell. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't have wandered away from God's presence. Where can I go that God can't reach? Think of one place. You can't. The first person that comes to mind when I think of this concept of God always pursuing us is C.S. Lewis. Okay, so the story of C.S. Lewis's life is absolutely beautiful. So he wrote his autobiography called Surprised by Joy which I highly recommend that everybody here reads it. But his whole life is running and running and running and running away from God. He's trying to find something else. He's trying to find pleasure or joy or some sort of fulfillment, and he can't find it. Okay, And his story is the definition of God's love, because you see God pursuing him, despite all his efforts to run away. So I'm just going to read to you a little part to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. So I'm going to start from page 220, and this book is only 230 pages, so the climax of his conversion happens at the very, very end. Okay, For 220 pages, what's C.S. Lewis doing? He's running. He's running, he's trying to find pleasure and joy and comfort and fulfillment in this road and it's empty. And in that road and it's empty. And in that other road and it's empty. One empty road after another. 220 pages of empty roads. Okay? So, we'll skip those 220 pages and cut to the climax, alright? Now, the paragraph before this climactic conversion... He says, amiable agnostics, agnostics obviously someone who who doesn't know, that's what the word literally means, doesn't know if God exists, amiable agnostics 
will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. They don't know, so they talk cheerfully about their own search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Okay, so this is how he puts it. I was looking for God as much as the mouse would have been looking for the cat. So, he says, remember I always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I had wanted to call my soul my own. I had been far more anxious to avoid suffering than to achieve the light. I had always aimed at limited liabilities. Okay, so he wanted to just be comfortable. I wasn't trying to go down this God path. Okay, my whole life was trying to find joy, fulfillment everywhere else but that. Okay, so this is Jonah trying to just find his own place anywhere but Nineveh. I'll go anywhere but Nineveh. Okay, so he says when it comes to the point, here's when we get to the climax of his conversion. Total surrender, the absolute leap in the dark were demanded. The reality with which no treaty can be made was upon me. The demand was not even all or nothing. I think that stage had passed. Now the demand was simply all. Okay, so I was just cornered. It wasn't even that God gave me the option of all or nothing. Now it was just all. Like I had no other path to even try. He says, you must picture me alone in the room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him who so earnestly, I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The words compel entrar, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. And he concludes saying, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. So, in, in C.S. Lewis's life, he's running and running and running away from God, and what he wanted to avoid was that which exactly found him. Right? And he uses an example where at least the prodigal son walked back on his own two feet. I was just cornered. I had to just walk down this path. He says, kicking and screaming and grumbling. I didn't want to commit. But look at the humility of God. That still chases after a stubborn child like me. 
You see, God could have easily said, all right, Jonah, you want to go to Tarshish? Toz Zafik. <laughs> and that's it. He could have said, go, atfaddal. But he still continues to chase. Father Matthew the poor says, He who knew no sin, God the Father, made to be sin for our sake. Even when the adulterer, the licentious, he who was wallowing in the mire of impurity and the filth of shameless deeds, I say even when such a sinner evades Christ, a voice runs after him. It's the blood of God's Son calling out, Come, beloved Son, your sins are with me. I've entirely borne them the day you had made them. It's God's voice that never ceases. You see, the one thing that God can never do, and I know once you say God can't do something, everybody's just like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> but I'll put it boldly. The one thing that God can never do is stop loving us. God can never stop loving us. He can never stop chasing after us. Because that's who He is. He is love. How can love not love? <laughs> How can light not shine? How could light be dark? That's his nature. I remember um, a close friend of mine was uh, sharing a story with me about how she was uh, standing in the altar during the time of communion and the priest was uh, giving the women uh, the, the, the body of Christ. And she was just like a couple of feet away from the communion line. And she was standing there and thinking about the depth of God's love and His humility and how He has descended to take on our shame and to accept the, the, the consequences of our sins and how in His love He even stooped all the way down to wash His own disciples' feet. He made Himself a servant to His own creatures. And she said, like, at this point, my mind was just spinning. Like I, I was all over the place. How can God wash His own disciples' feet to go down to their feet in such humility to wash His own disciples' feet? And she said, at this time, as Abuna was giving communion to one of the ladies, a piece from the body of Christ fell out of His hand and it just rolled over and bumped her foot right at that moment. She said, I was just petrified. <laughs> and if God wasn't <laughs> telling her, yeah, that's my love, I'll come down to your feet. That's, a, that's the depth of God's humility. That I will chase, chase you to the extent of washing your own feet. I'm not too proud. Father Matthew the poor says, This is the wonderful Yahweh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who commanded His Son to descend. Look for the, for the stray lambs and carry them in His heart and soul. Christ was to raise them and take them to the Father in heaven so that He could offer them the feast of His love. See, God doesn't just call for us. He doesn't even shout for us. But 
He truly pursues us. When you think of pursuing someone, it's not just about like shouting out for them. It's, it's literally running, chasing after them. When you think of God's love, it's not just something passive that sits back and says, hey, I'm here. If you need me, come right back. I'm at church. Come to church. No. But the shepherd runs after the lost sheep. He doesn't say, hey, you little lost sheep out there, I'm going to stick around in the pasture. Whenever you're ready to come back, I'm here. No. He leaves the flock and chases after the lost sheep. When the shepherd leaves the flock, he goes to a place that he doesn't belong. When Christ leaves his throne and enters into our humanity, he goes to a place where he doesn't belong. You see, God's pursuit for humanity is a little different than Jonah going to Nineveh. Jonah is a human being, and what, what place isn't fit for Jonah? I mean, as great as a prophet as he might have been, what place, what place was, was not good enough for Jonah? But you see, for Christ to leave his throne and to come into our, our shame and our, and our humiliation is a little different. Almost always, the, the most troubling verse that people talk about is whenever Christ is in Gethsemane and he's praying, he says, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done. And people wonder, how is it that God, Christ, would have this sense of, of, of stress and anxiety that he's praying for God to take away from him this cup? T.F. Torrance explains this in just the most beautiful way. He says, It's in our place that Jesus prays, standing where we stand in our rebellion and alienation, existing where we exist in our refusal of divine grace and in our will to be independent, to live our own life in self-reliance. In that condition, Jesus prays against the whole trend of our existence and against all the self-willed movement of our life. For when Jesus prays, it means that He casts Himself in utter reliance upon God the Father. You see, when He chases after us, He even identifies with our alienation. He identified with our condition. So he doesn't just say, come back whenever you want. But he says, you're in a mess, I'm going to come and join you in this mess. And I'll bring you back with me. I'll get messy with you. That's fine. T.F. Torres continues, he says, in this way Jesus prays. From within our alienation and in battle against our self-will. That's the prayer we're given to overhear. Not my will, that is, not the will of the alienated humanity which Jesus has made His own, but Thy will be done. Thus, He offers from out of our disobedience a prayer of obedience. So, He enters into our life of alienation, our life of 
brokenness, everything. And he takes this broken, disobedient humanity and realigns it back to God. This is how he pursues us. This is how he chases us. He says he offers out of our disobedience a prayer of obedience. See, going back to Jonah, Jonah ran away. God chased after him to convert him. But God didn't seek humanity just by chasing after humanity. He identified with our abandonment. He identified with our alienation. How else can we understand God's words when He says, Why have you forsaken me? Christ, hanging on the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, was it just a facade? Was He pretending? No. He entered our alienation. He was forsaken because as a forsaken humanity, He dove right in with us. But he was not tainted by our sins and he lifted us up from our death. So, St. Gregory of Nazianzus says, look at it in this manner. Just as for my sake he was called a curse and destroyed my curse, and sin who takes away the sin of the world and became a new Adam to take away the place of the old, just so he makes my disobedience his own as head of the whole body. That's a little bold. He says he takes my disobedience and he calls it his own. As long then as I am disobedient and rebellious, both by denial of God and by my passions, so long Christ is also called disobedient on my account. And when all things shall be subdued to him, then he himself also will have fulfilled his submission, bringing me whom he has saved to God. The story of Jonah in the belly of the whale, this three-day fast, is a figure of the salvation that is to come. This is like a little mini Lent. This is like a little mini Lent. And that's why the church puts it for us just a couple of weeks before Lent. These three days are what the 40 days are all about. The journey from death to life. The journey of God bringing humanity from slavery to freedom. If we meditate on God's love, just like I, I started out by saying, we're going to celebrate the three-day fast, then the fast will be joyful. Because this is when we strip away our will and our ego and say, God, I'm yours. I'm here to listen and to experience the salvation that you have for me. I'll leave you with this final quote from Father Matthew the Poor. Says, O glorious shepherd, possessor of the mystery of the Lamb, how was it that you were able to slaughter yourself to feed your sheep with the mystery of your divinity, and then raise up your sheep from their earthly pens to the heights of glory? I'm at a loss. The mystery of the shepherd on the one hand, and the mystery of the Lamb on the other, leave me at a loss. 
How was it that you were able on the cross to take off the garb of the shepherd and take on the form of the lamb? Who ever heard of a shepherd taking on the form of a lamb that is slaughtered, so as to lead his flock across the valley of death and raise them up with, with him to reach the safe haven of life? O faithful shepherd of souls, my soul follows you. And glory be to God forever. Amen.